You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopolies through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. And this week we're in discussion with Professor David Woxmuth from McGill's University, the School of Urban Planning, Montreal. Now, last week, David wrote a key article entitled Airbnb and Gentrification in New York. This led to a tweet exchange with the good old Airbnb CEO. So uh, he's touching some buttons with this discussion. Uh, have a think about Airbnb. It's been growing at a compound rate of 153% per annum since 2009. And this is leading to huge changes in our communities. We started off by discussing the state of this booming industry and how it's luring landholders into changing their perspective on how they see a home. Exactly. And I mean, you know, for from the perspective of users, of tourists, it's a great convenience that you can travel and you can you know, find a, a whole new range of opportunities for accommodation that aren't just the hotels in the traditional hotel district. But from the perspective of landlords, of property owners, it's a massive new re- revenue stream. And so some, you see some property owners and residents taking advantage of that by renting out a spare room or renting out their apartment when they're gone for the weekend. But you've also seen a much more worryingly, um, a, a really large growth in landlords who are turning to Airbnb as their primary source of um, of revenue for their property. So kind of converting out of a normal 12-month lease and instead taking on a succession of short-term tourists um, for what ends up being quite a, a lot more money. And the, the motivations there are uh, stark, aren't they, in terms of the way land can be altered in its use. And Uh, You had a a fantastic post that uh, led to a lot of uh, online interest uh, regarding the role of Airbnb in New York. Do you want to take us through that? Yeah, well, this is a situation where there's been a lot of smoke, but we haven't been sure about the fire, where, um, you know, you look at cities across the world and you see a lot of concern that Airbnb in particular and kind of these short-term rentals more generally um, are um, making housing for residents more scarce and more expensive um, and specifically that Airbnb is kind of a force driving gentrification city. So there's this concern and the suspicion that we've seen in, um, around the world. And what I wanted to do was to try to see if I could find any evidence um, for this phenomenon. And I used New York City as a case study and I certainly did what I found I think is uh, you could probably charitably describe as fairly disturbing. Basically, on the one hand, there's a, an enormous number of housing units in New York um, that are now being rented basically full-time on Airbnb. And all the evidence is that um, if they weren't being rented on Airbnb, they'd be in the rental housing market. Just to contextualize this, New York City has a vacancy rate, a rental vacancy rate of last time they measured it, it was 2.4%. Um, there are many neighborhoods um, in uh, lower Manhattan in particular, and also in the Williamsburg area of Brooklyn, where there are more than 2.4% of rental apartments now full-time on Airbnb. Um, so it's, it, you know, there are lots of places in the city where it's had very little effect. You know, you go deep into the Bronx, um, into, uh, into Queens, into Staten Island, some of the, the kind of surrounding areas of New York where there's not a lot of action, but in near the central city, Airbnb has in the course of just a couple of years, totally transformed the housing market. 
I think your your research looked at 110,000 listings, but many of these were yeah. just rented once or twice. But when you looked at those that were dedicated to Airbnb rentals only, it was some 54% of, of those numbers. But what you're saying is that uh, if you essentially you could add these 2.4 percent odd of uh, airbnb properties to the vacancy rate to say that look we've actually got close to five percent of our stock not being used for the general community for the the rental market well yeah and actually the, uh, the other thing is that the last time that the rental vacancy rate in new york was measured because um, there's a this, the u.s census bureau measures it every three years it was in 2014 which is before airbnb really got going in the way that it has subsequently which means that um you know we don't we actually don't know what new york's uh what what the the state of the of, of um, rental vacancy is right now in the kind of traditional side of the market what we do know is that um you know what my research has found and i think it's consistent with what other people have um, been finding as well is that even though airbnb the company will often say look the majority of our hosts they're just, uh, you know, they, they're occasional um, hosts. They rent an apartment out when they're gone for the weekend or it's a spare room, that kind of thing. That might be true that the majority of the people who are signing up as hosts on Airbnb are those occasional users. But the majority of the money and the majority of the rentals are happening with uh, landlords who are kind of serial repeat users, you know, where they're renting out their, um, uh, their apartments 90 days, 120 days, 150 days, 350 days a year. Um, my estimate is that in New York City, um, roughly over the 2015, which is when I was looking at this, there are probably um, about 16,000 um, full uh, housing units that are that were um, rented at least 90 days of that year. Um, and it, you know the occupancy rate on Airbnb it's about 50%, which means if it was rented 90 days, it was it had to have been on the on the market on Airbnb's website for about 180 days. Which means it's really hard to picture you've got a normal 12 month tenant in that apartment while you're renting it out on Airbnb that much. So with that number of properties on the market, uh, it's had some very interesting effects on uh, what you call the rent gap. Can you give us a, an yeah. overview of what the rent gap is all about? Yeah, well, this is a, a theory about um, how gentrification works that was developed by the geographer Neil Smith. And his idea is that um, when a building first gets built um, and gets it gets to be used for what you know we call the highest and best use. Um, it kind of commands the maximum amount of income for the um, for the landlord, the kind of the re a rent stream. And over time, that the rent that the owner is able to get from that property tends to decline because the building deteriorates. Because you know it was built as an apartment building, but now you know maybe people want condos. Um, so for a bunch of reasons, in general, we we see. Um, actual rents um, that uh, property owners are able to achieve go down over time. But at the same time, it's often quite true that the potential rents that landlords could uh, achieve go up because the city's growing, because, you know, the new technology means you could build a nicer building because the zoning could be changed and you could build a condo where previously it was a single family home, all these kinds of factors. So um, what this means is that areas where there's been a lot of disinvestment in property, where buildings have deteriorated and the actual rents have declined, a rent gap can develop between the actual returns that landowners get and the potential returns they could get if they redeveloped. When that gap gets big enough, Neil Smith argued, across a neighborhood, you're, you're very likely to see capital arrive in the form of renovations, in the form of redevelopment, in the form of new construction. And he argued this is basically, in a nutshell, 
the phenomenon of gentrification, that you have areas where, where properties decline, where there's a gap that opens up, where more money can be made if you redevelop, and then redevelopment happens. So that's a pretty standard story that we've had um, in geography and in urban planning for the last uh, 30 or 40 years. What my hypothesis with Airbnb was that it was acting in a kind of similar fashion to create a rent gap, but rather than one driven by the deterioration of existing properties, the way the Airbnb rent gap works is simply that the potential amount of money a landlord can make has just skyrocketed in certain neighborhoods In neighborhoods where there's a lot of tourist demand. Um, you can earn two or three or four times or more of that, the kind of the prevailing 12 month rent for a property, if you can get it onto the short term rental market instead. So this was my, my theory was that Airbnb is creating a kind of massive structural pressure um, to change um, housing land use from long-term rentals to short-term rentals in areas where there's a sufficient international, you know, kind of extra local tourist demand. And so I checked, I, that's what I was testing in New York and I found that that is true. And you can kind of measure that, I, first of all, by looking at how much of the rental revenue that gets generated every month, how much of that is now going through Airbnb as opposed to through standard 12-month leases. And what I found is that there's some parts of the of New York where that's that number's 10% or higher. So Airbnb's had you know now accounts for a very very large chunk of all the of the rents that get paid on a on a monthly basis in um, in Lower Manhattan and Northern Brooklyn. And the second thing I looked at, and this is probably the more concerning one, is that even in, there are some na- neighborhoods where there isn't that much Airbnb activity right now, but the landlords who are who are doing it are making a killing. And um, these are the areas that are. Um, that are kind of at the forefront of gentrification right now, where where that rent gap is still very, very large, where there's a big pressure on landlords to get their current tenants out and and set up Airbnb short-term rentals instead. And so particularly in, the, in Harlem and in Bedford-Stuyvesant, two neighborhoods a little outside of the center of the city, my prediction is that these are going to be basically the next frontier um, for Airbnb-driven gentrification because landlords can make so much more money on the service than they would if they're just using standard um, standard 12-month leases. So much more money. My jaw actually dropped when I saw figure five, which looks at the percentage of median rent earned by right. average full-time whole unit Airbnb listings. And, uh, oh, my God, it was incredible to see how many areas are earning above 100% rents. Yeah. Right. And how many are earning above 200 or 300% even? And it um, goes right up to 500 to 887% higher rents under an Airbnb listing than renting it out to your um, to the, the standard rental market. Well, you know, and a big part of the story here is that New York has pretty strong rent control and rent stabilization laws. Absolutely. Which means that, um, yeah, that, you know, that, that in a lot of cases, landlords are very constrained in terms of the, amount, the rents that they're able to um, to extract out of their tenants. And Airbnb is one way of circumventing those laws because there are situations where maybe the, the market rent, if, if, if it were just left up to the market, would be $3,000 a month, but because of rent stabilization, you're only able to charge as a landlord 2000 Well, go on Airbnb, you can get 4000 And not only that, but um, if you do succeed in getting your tenant out and you, work and you rent your place on Airbnb for a while, if that doesn't work out, you're going to be able to charge a higher uh, 12-month rent to the next tenant anyways, um, because of the way that the rent control laws work in New York, which means it's kind of a win-win for the landlord. Um, so I think it's just a huge, huge, huge increase in the incentives for 
landlords to um, to, to evict tenants um, or to to fail to find new tenants when an existing tenant leaves, and instead to switch over to the short term rental market. And so, for our generally Australian listeners, uh, the the rent control scenario in New York, can you explain how how that works? Yeah, so um, there's a relative now relatively small number of units in New York that have what is called what is called specifically called rent control, where there's a, a very strict limit on how much rent can be charged. But there's a much larger set of apartments that fall into what's called rent stabilization. And the way that that works is landlords are prevented from increasing the rent by more than a specific agreed allowed amount every year. And also that tenants are, have the right to renew their leases indefinitely. Um, so uh, the by and large, that threshold is $2,700. So if, if, the, if the current rent is under $2,700, for the most part, that means that the unit is rent stabilized, which means the landlord can only increase the rent by a small percentage every year. And in theory, it can't force a tenant to leave. But the big trick, so to speak, the big kind of loophole in the rent stabilization regime in New York is that, that if, the, if a tenant leaves, all bets are off, which means uh, landlords have a major incentive already to to uh, get tenants, uh, kind of the long-standing tenants who are benefiting from rent stabilization out of the apartment, because then they can, um, it's very easy for them to raise the rent by quite a lot. That, that's where this uh, gotcha rent eviction element comes through, where uh, they'll try all sorts of different tricks to to force someone out, um, yeah, and, and make people pay via check or via cash rather than use electronic payments and just do everything they can to make it difficult to pay your rent. Yeah, exactly. Or do things, you know, mess around with the hot water or with the electricity, fail to do repairs. So, yeah, so these are, this is, there's a real kind of standard toolkit of slimy techniques that landlords will use here. Airbnb doesn't, it just intensifies that situation because it means that, you know, if, if you can imagine a situation where you're a landlord and you're charging 2400 you think you could probably get 28 but uh, if you could just get your tenant out. But now Airbnb, you look at, the, you know, the neighbor who's, that's on Airbnb and they're making 3500 4200 whatever, and it just makes you all the more determined um, to, to go for this. And actually, what's interesting is um, Airbnb admits, you know, in their more honest moments, they admit that this is a problem. The CEO recently was um, you know, discussing on stage, uh, like in public, um, the, whether or not the company is going to have a, um, a going to go public on the stock market. And was saying when it was, he was asked about the challenges the company is facing, was saying, well, one thing that happened to us in New York was we, we thought we were going to be serving people who are renting out their apartments on the weekend. And it actually turned out to be professional landlords converting their units en masse. So, um, you know, they 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 know that this is a problem. They do their best to kind of hide that problem with some of the ways they present the, the um, facts and figures about the company. But um, you know, I think the, the research I've done really conclusively demonstrates that um, this is a serious challenge for New York, and my suspicion is for uh, many other cities in the world. You're on Three CR's Renegade Economist this week, discussing with Professor David Waxmuth from McGill's University in Canada the role of Airbnb and the drastic change that our cities are facing as uh, land use intensification uh, keeps escalating forward on uh, so many different frontiers. And one of the most interesting elements of your study was seeing exactly where these frontiers of gentrification were in New York and how uh, this rent gap 
um, is playing out. And uh, I just wanted you to comment on uh, the cultural issues at play here as well. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's you know that's interesting that you raise that because there's a very clear um, divide between the neighborhoods where I've found Airbnb is currently running rampant on the one hand, and then the neighborhoods where I think it's going to be a major threat um, in the future. And the neighborhoods where Airbnb is currently running rampant tend to be white neighborhoods. Um, New York is a very racially diverse city, um, but uh, the current the, the the hot spots of Airbnb activity for the last couple of years have been um, areas that are much more than the rest of the city are uh, tend to be uh, um, to have uh, white people living in them. Whereas the two in particular neighborhoods of Harlem and Bedford-Stuyvesant, which I think are going to be kind of the next in the firing line, so to speak, are predominantly African-American. So the first thing to think about is that there is a very strong kind of racial dimension to the, the geographical pattern of Airbnb activity that we see in the city. And I think that, you know, there's there definitely are cultural factors at play there in terms of what neighborhoods have traditionally been thought of as appealing and interesting for, um, for tourists. Um, and I think that uh, actually Airbnb itself is probably part of a phenomenon where people are, you know, having kind of more and more open minds about where they're interested in staying when they visit places. Um, and I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, that's a really good thing that, you know, people don't kind of feel like they need to stick to some kind of traditional safe neighborhood. But I think that what that means is that, Neighborhoods, racialized neighborhoods, which are already um, under a lot of stress from um, rising rents, from displacement, from gentrification, are going to be hit with a double whammy because Airbnb is going to kind of, you know, really unleash a whole new tide of money and of tourists, which are going to be competing for relatively scarce, affordable apartments. And so what you're saying there is that the the volume of airbnb has been set up in established and already gentrified uh, largely white neighborhoods but the areas where the greatest rent cap is where the greatest profits are for airbnb are on these frontiers of gentrification in these traditionally cultural uh hotspots so uh, yeah that doesn't augur well for local communities there and exactly uh, how do we work towards a a realistic way of of licensing, for example, uh, Airbnb properties? Yeah, well, this is a great question, and I think it actually highlights one of the biggest challenges that cities face, which is that Airbnb, as well as a lot of other companies, you have to say in the so-called sharing economy, Uber is, is probably the other biggest example. One of the reasons that they're running so wild right now is because municipalities have a very, very hard time regulating them. In the case of Airbnb, municipalities, in order to effectively enforce regulations against Airbnb, tend to rely on inspectors to go visit apartments, see what's going on, and, um, you know, in some cases, issue fines and the rest of it. That's just never going to be a solution that works on the kind of scale that would be necessary for cities to enforce whatever policies um, they'd like to with respect to Airbnb. The right regulatory approach in general is that full-time Airbnb listings just shouldn't be allowed. They, they should be illegal everywhere. I think it's great if somebody rents out their apartment while they're visiting their, their family somewhere, you know, in a different city. That's, that's a kind of, that's an intensification of, of housing use that is, I think is probably win-win. But people who are trying to find affordable apartments and affordable places to live shouldn't have to compete with tourists to do that. And so it's, it's vital that we protect affordable rental housing in cities. And that means that landlords should not have the right to convert long-term mental housing into what is effectively hotels. A lot of city governments agree with that, and definitely a lot of community 
groups and social movements around the world agree with that. But the problem is that even cities that have tried to take that line have found it very, very difficult to um, enforce those kinds of regulations. Currently in New York, it's illegal to do what Airbnb is doing. The law is very clear. The, the kind of the sanctions that municipalities themselves are, are able to bring against a company like that are just just aren't adequate. So in, in, the, in the case of the United States, I think we need action at the, at, from state governments, from federal governments. That's going to look different in different countries around the world, depending on the legal setup. But the bottom line is that right now there's a huge gap between what I think many people agree we should be doing and then what is practical for cities themselves as by and large, not a, a very powerful tier of government to actually accomplish. In terms of oversight, let's switch channels, but still within the housing market and within this rapid change that cities are facing with the the role of mobile capital being able to buy and sell a property from uh, their iPhone sitting in a hammock from their favourite tax haven. Uh, (laughs) We are both very interested in the role of vacancies and I note that uh, you played a part in some of the discussions surrounding the new vacancy tax in Vancouver which is due to come into effect in December 2017, uh, it sounds like there's going to be some pretty significant fines based around this uh, uh, 1% vacancy tax on self-reported vacancies. How is this self-reporting going to play out, do you think? Well, yeah, it's interesting. Vancouver, like a lot of cities, and certainly like cities in Australia, um, is you know is currently dealing with um, a situation where there's a lot of money coming in that's buying up housing as an investment. Um, and the people doing that uh, investing often don't have any particular interest in living in the houses. So you've got vacant homes. The first thing to say about this is that it's encouraging how, how much outrage that this issue generates. You know, in cities, in various cities that I've, I've uh, worked in and uh, done research in, um, that, you know, I think there's widespread belief among city residents that, it, there's a kind of moral problem uh, if you have a whole bunch of homes sitting empty when housing is so unaffordable for so many people. So I think that's really encouraging. I'm, I'm really glad that the city of Vancouver is taking the step to try to tax these homes. And I think that their strategy is really aimed at trying to discourage you from from treating a house like an investment in that way. That the um, the fine is uh, it's you know it's a it's it's a, you know I think they're differing opinions about you know like how much of a difference it will make to property investors but i think it's you know it's it's reasonably big and uh, the goal is that you'll either pay that fine or you'll decide to sell your building to someone who is willing to to you know to, to live in that house or to rent it out to somebody else so that's all good the problem and it's a kind of similar problem to some of the issues around airbnb is that it's not that easy to um to know when a house is vacant uh, it's you know if you if you need to rely on inspections that's an enormous amount of labor um, and, and therefore costly labor um, to do those inspections. So Vancouver's model is everybody's going to be obligated to self-report that. And if you, um, if you do self-report that your the home is vacant, you pay a 1%, 1% additional property tax. But if you don't report it and you are subsequently discovered to have not reported it, you face an enormous fine. I believe it's $10,000 a day for the whole period of time that you weren't reporting it. So it's, it's designed to be extremely punitive if you, if you don't participate in the, in the self-reporting as a way to encourage people to participate in it. And I think the idea is that you know, it's meant to be kind of, it's win-win in the sense of maybe people decide they don't want to pay the fine, so they 
got renting out the, the house again, or maybe they decide they do want to pay the fine and the city raises money that it can use um, to fund affordable housing development elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, what sort of government budgets have been set aside for that oversight um, element? Because in housing, there's always underfunding in that place. It's almost a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. What sort of uh, resources are going to be dedicated to analysing whether properties are vacant or not? The, the system is going to be based on self-reporting. So, um, you know, the, the, the kind of the initial assumption is people will register and which is how it currently already works in Vancouver, that um, there are, you know, people can, can phone up the city and say, hey, look, there's a, you know, a vacant house on my street. Can you come do something about it? And so what, in, in response to those kinds of um, those kinds of complaints or those tips, basically, uh, the city will investigate the individual uh, house to see what's going on. I think the hope is that this is this program is going to be financially self-sustaining, right? Because the additional revenue we generate should more than offset the cost of inspection. But uh, you know, it's still we won't know for sure until it's been up and running for a while. Um, I think it's, it's also worth saying just that you know no one really knows what the scope of this problem is. Uh, the city conducted uh, commissioned a study last year, which I myself and a number of others didn't feel was we had a lot of questions about how that was done. The methodology wasn't very clear, but you know, it's, it's, I think it's fair to say that there's a lot of uncertainty here. And so I think that everybody's taking the attitude of start with this, this fee and let's see if it works. Yes, well, it's certainly good to see here in uh, my hometown of Melbourne, we've got uh, a similar 1% vacancy tax coming in in January next year. Uh, mm -hmm. We're currently trying to bump our way into the negotiations that the government very prominently said would occur with the property industry. But uh, what about those representing the public interest? We need to be uh, incorporating that as well, because if there aren't significant fines, a voluntary reporting system is going to deliver limited results. And here in Melbourne, uh, for a long time, the media has taken as gospel uh, a vacancy rate compiled by the real estate industry, which we uncovered was nothing more than uh, a voluntary survey amongst real estate agents as to how many uh, vacant rental properties they had on the market. So uh, right. they obviously had an incentive to put a downward bias on that to promote scarcity so that rents would keep increasing. But uh, all around the world, the need for a, a more comprehensive vacancy measure is vital when the difference between the rents and the, uh, the capital gains or the imputed rents that are enjoyed by property owners is becoming so stark. Right, exactly. And so to finish off, David Waxmuth, uh, then the role of Airbnb in supporting this incredible property bubble, which in places like Vancouver, people are paying uh, 65 times the median income to purchase a house. It's just off the Richter mm -hmm. scale. Well, these incredible profits you're talking about are some three to 800% greater than what can be earned in the rental market are only going to push this bubble uh, phenomenon further northward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm inclined to, to see Airbnb as well as the kind of activity we see with foreign investment in Vancouver and in um, Melbourne as well. These are all aspects of the financialization of housing in some sense. And, um, you know, I think that there's a persistent tension between housing as a human necessity. We all need shelter. We all need a roof over our heads, and housing as an investment where people make money and um, different places around the world 
manage that tension differently. But I think a kind of a consistent thing that we see in, in all sorts of different places in the world is that um, housing as an investment is, is winning and it's causing all sorts of crises for people's ability to live their lives. Um, and so one, one form that crisis takes is that tenants are being evicted because it's, it's more profitable for the landlord to rent the apartment on Airbnb. Another form that this crisis takes is that houses are being bought and no one's living in them because they're working as an investment property instead of a shelter. So I think that the, um, that's a bad story, but what's encouraging is that another consistent thing we see across uh, cities across the world is um, residents, communities standing up against um, the financialization or the commodification of housing and demanding that um, housing be, first of all, um, used to kind of to fulfill human needs um, that, that, that need to shelter, that right to shelter. The, you know, the specific policies that governments will have to take in order to, to ensure that housing as a right is the top priority are going to be different in different situations. We're going to have to leave it there. That is David Wachsmuth from David, W-A-C-H-S-M-U-T-H dot com. W-A-C-H-S-M-U-T-H dot com. Check earthsharing.org.au for this.